Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information. We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. My name is David Nash. I am the director of the Legal One program, and we are very happy to have with us today a very special guest. We have Judge Ellen Bass with us, who served for many years as an administrative law judge and is now serving as of counsel to the Bush Law Group, a wonderful school law firm in the state of New Jersey that works with many school districts and, of course, does a great deal of other legal work as well. So uh, we're very happy to have Judge Bass with us. Thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Judge, I would love to have you introduce yourself to our listeners as we're getting started. If you could tell us a little bit about your background and the various roles that you've served in in your career. Well, I'd be happy to do that. My career started in 1980 um, when I took a position with the New Jersey Association of School Administrators as their in-house counsel. I sort of fell into that job. I was returning to New Jersey um, from law school in Boston. My husband had a job in New Jersey, and that was an opportunity that presented itself. So I like to say that I fell into school law and never fell back out, and I'm very happy about that. School law has been my career for about 42 years now. After school administrators, I joined two different private law firms where my focus was primarily in the representation of local public school districts as board attorney. I then went on to be the in-house attorney at the South Orange Maplewood Board of Education for five and a half years, a wonderful experience where I got to manage their legal affairs, but from the inside out, which was a completely different way of looking at how school districts run, a very enriching and rewarding experience for me. And from there, I was appointed to become an administrative law judge, which I did for 13 years. During the last two and a half years, I was the um, acting director of the Office of Administrative Law during COVID. So um, very challenging time to be running a state agency, but also in its way, a very exciting time. And um, I retired from public service in uh, June of 2022, I had to remember when that was, and joined the Bush Law Group as of counsel, which is um, an exciting new opportunity for me to sort of go back to my roots and directly represent the interests of local school districts. So you've had an incredible career, um, and uh, you have an incredible career uh, that has touched on so many aspects of school law. I do find when I'm uh, speaking with Uh, school leaders, educators, others involved in in education throughout the state, that many don't fully understand how the 
Office of Administrative Law works, what happens at an administrative law hearing. Um, in some ways, it's shrouded in mystery until you're there in the middle of, of dealing with a particular case. So can you talk a little bit about um, administrative law hearings, what they look like, and perhaps how they might uh, be similar to and differ from other sorts of legal proceedings? Absolutely. So let me start. I always like to start when people say to me, you're a judge. What kind of judge are you? What do you do? I tell them civics 101. So I invite your listeners to go back to their sixth grade civics class. And remember that we have three branches of government, the judicial branch, the legislative branch, and the executive branch. So when you think of a judge, you usually think of the judicial branch, of course, but administrative law judges are part of the executive branch of government. Administrative agencies are part of the bureaucracy of that branch of government. So um, the governor is the chief executive, and underneath him or her are all the different state agencies that um, make New Jersey run day in and day out. And administrative law judges hear disputes that come from administrative agencies, including, obviously of greatest interest to your listeners, the Department of Education. The Office of Administrative Law is its own state agency. We're I'm going to try to say this correctly. We're in but not of Treasury, which is a very strange um, little expression, which means we're part of Treasury, but not really. And we're basically um, a group of, of judges that are appointed by the governor to be fact finders in administrative law cases again, including education cases, but we hear a broad range of cases, um, everything from um, pension cases, which does affect um, your listeners sometimes, licensing cases, which can also affect um, your listeners. We, we do um, render decisions dealing with um, teacher licenses, administrators' licenses, but also a broad range of licenses, doctors' licenses, surveyor licenses, anything you can think of. We hear um, DIFUS cases. They're not DIFUS anymore, DDCMP, whatever they call themselves. I'm an old lady, so I'm still, uh, I still call them DIFUS. We hear alcohol and beverage control cases. I, the list goes on. And basically, we, we serve as um, independent fact finders for the state agencies. 99.9% of the time, our cases go back to the state agency for a final decision. So we render a recommendation to the agency, and they make a final decision on your case. Special education is the one exception to that. Our decisions are final in special education matters. What does the OAL look like when you get there? It's a lot less formal than if I don't know if any of your listeners have had the experience of going to superior court. It's certainly a lot less formal environment. The rooms are smaller and less grand looking, um, but we do maintain certain formalities. You will see a judge that's um, on a bench that's wearing a robe. Typically, attorneys do represent the parties, although not always. We're definitely um, open to people that wish to come and represent themselves without an attorney. So while school districts have to have an attorney when they appear in court, parents do sometimes come unrepresented. And we conduct a trial much like, um, I always joke, much like a trial you would see on TV, only the people aren't as good looking. <laughs> um, so um, it, it, I, I think it's a friendly, welcoming um, environment, but I do appreciate that it can be intimidating to, uh, to someone who's new to it. And, and there are certain formalities, of course, that we do still maintain. And uh, 
There are some differences. Uh, so, for example, the evidence that you will allow in an administrative law hearing, not exactly the same standard that you would have for other types of proceedings. Can you talk about that and issues of hearsay? Yes, exactly. So hearsay is the best example. So some people will say the rules of evidence um, don't apply at the Office of Administrative Law. So to explain what the rules of evidence are, it's a book that's pretty thick and it's a body of law that's supposed to help people navigate what's information that's reasonable for a judge to consider and will really enhance the judge's ability to make a good decision in the case. And that you know, you might say, well, that's common sense, but it's really not. It's evolved over time to be a big book of rules. To say that they don't apply would be overstating it. I think a better way of putting it is we're a little more relaxed. And hearsay is a good example. Many, many people who are not attorneys know what hearsay means. That's when I repeat something that I heard somebody else say, kind of like gossip, right? So I, I heard you say to somebody, you know, that you didn't think Nancy's dress was pretty. So I go tell Mary that David said that Nancy's dress wasn't pretty. That would be hearsay, right? In a superior court action, in a judicial branch court, that would not be um, admissible in court. That would be something the judge couldn't consider. We can consider a statement like that at the Office of Administrative Law, but there's a big but. And that but is something called the residuum rule. So what does that mean? That means that anything that the judge considers has to be supported by a residuum of competent evidence, which brings you back around to evidence that really would not be hearsay. So if if I take a statement and I use that to corroborate what you actually saw, I can do that. But I can't base my decision on that. So um, that's sort of a long-winded way of saying that we're a little more relaxed out of recognition of the fact that we're an administrative forum, out of recognition of the fact that people come sometimes unrepresented, but there still has to be a basis for the facts that the judge is considering. Because our goal is to really, really be fair, (laughs) right? We're, We're looking to weigh both sides of the story and really find out what the right answer is. I like to joke with people that there's three sides to every story, your version, my version, and the truth. We all bring to to a situation our own perceptions, our own baggage, and somewhere in the middle is that sweet spot of what really happened. Um, And that's the judge's job. So we try to do that as fairly as possible. But yes, it's a little more relaxed than in other forums. Yeah, and I'm I'm so happy that we talked through that example. Um, Sometimes when I'm working with school administrators, I will hear this notion that, well, I can't really do anything about some incident that might have occurred because I didn't directly witness it and we don't have any other staff member who directly witnessed it. Um, and we're just hearing secondhand information about an issue. Certainly part of what I always tell school leaders is that secondhand information, even rumor gossip can be something that triggers an investigation and that hearsay can be part of the total picture. Exactly right. It's a place to start. In the end, you you may, to really prove your case, you may need um, firsthand evidence, but, but that's a good starting point to get you there. And, and it would be admissible a court to explain to the judge how you got there. So let's talk a little bit about some of uh, what you have seen during administrative uh, law proceedings. What are some of the common mistakes that you have seen um, in the courtroom? And, and talk about some of the issues that have arisen, perhaps both in preparation for hearings um, and just the way people are conducting themselves during hearings. 
Well, let me start with preparing and then I'll bring you up to the hearing. Um, so I have three um, words that I um, always share with people in terms of how to prepare for the hearing and how to actually um, avoid the hearing altogether. So that's probably a good place to start. And so here are my three words, anticipate, communicate, document. So what do I mean by that? Anticipate. So we all went into education, both the educators and the attorneys, because we like people, right? We're, we're people, people. We like to interact with people. We're sensitive to their concerns and their needs. So anticipate. I urge school administrators, if you see something that seems a little bit off, keep an eye on it. So what do I mean by that? The parent that's emailing a little too frequently, the child who, who um, doesn't seem quite comfortable in the classroom, keep an eye on situations that your radar is telling you could lead to a problem, could lead to a dispute, and try to be proactive when you see things. Um, don't say, ah, manana, or it, it doesn't matter, or, no one's complaining yet. Try to be that proactive teacher, staff member, administrator, who, um, you know, they, they joke that if you're on public transportation, if you see something, say something. Same here. If you see something, say something. You know, uh, if you're if you're a, a principal, tell your superintendent, you know, maybe that you, that you see there's a problem. If you're a teacher, tell your supervisor. Um, try to talk it out. Don't don't stir the pot and create the problem, but anticipate that this this may be a problem scenario for any number of reasons. Um, communicate. So important in all walks of life, but particularly in terms of um, litigation avoidance. Um, if, if you see that a child is unhappy, call the parent and say your child is unhappy in class. Um, here's what I'm observing. Here's what's concerning me. A parent communicates with you, respond promptly, respond effectively, you know, and respond responsively. Keep the lines of communication open. Um, if I had um, a dollar for every lawsuit that started because someone felt unheard, I'd be very wealthy. People need to be heard. Um, and I understand that everybody's pulled in a million different directions, but you can avoid so much trouble in litigation by just keeping the lines of communication open. And last but not least, document. Very important. Nothing should ever be he said, she said. Um, if you offered a service to a child, offer it in writing. Um, if, if you offered a solution to a problem, confirm your conversation in writing. Um, make sure that, that, that your file is completely documents all the, all the good things you did. Don't end up in court later with somebody suggesting you didn't call me, you didn't, you didn't respond, you didn't answer my email, when you know you did. If it's all in writing, there can be no dispute about it. Um, well, let me ask you about the issue of documentation. Um, Sometimes I hear from school leaders, they are very fearful that uh, under the pressure of cross-examination in court, they're going to forget things. They're not going to possibly remember all of the thorough, wonderful steps they took in dealing with an issue. Can, can you talk about the importance of documentation and how it can actually be used to refresh someone's recollection so that we don't have to remember every detail of every issue that we've ever dealt with. That's exactly right. So, you know, when we talk a little bit more about going to um, the hearing, I was going to say that it's, it's important to, um, to review all your, your, you know, review your file, review your documents, try to remember as much as you can. Um, but we're human. We are all human. And sometimes the events took place many months ago, sometimes sadly, even 
could be several years ago. No crime in saying, I don't remember. And exactly right. If you don't remember, your attorney will then prompt you with documents that will help refresh your memory. So honesty is the, is the policy when you go to court. That's obvious. But it even, that even extends to being honest about what you don't know, what you don't remember and what you don't know. So simply saying some time has elapsed and I, I, you know, I feel badly, but I don't remember. I do remember I put it in a memo. That's going to trigger your lawyer to Absolutely. pull out that memo and help you out. So, so th- those are those are wonderful um, basic themes to think about as you're trying to deal with you know, avoiding and addressing potential legal issues. Um, so how has some of this played out in the courtroom? Uh, some of the perhaps mistakes that you've seen. So the main mistake that I see in hearing rooms is personalizing it, I think is the best way that I can express it. I know when I was a board attorney, I used to um, have a heart to heart with, um, particularly with child study team members. They're typically very passionate people, right? Very passionate about the work they do um, and care very deeply about the child and, and about the case. But I try to remind them that the case actually isn't about them, that they're there to just do a job. It kind of sounds a little cold or harsh, or maybe as if I'm not giving enough um, due to the to the passion that they're bringing. But I, I always found that helpful. My recommendation is to go into court, be genuine, be honest, be professional, but always remember that the case really isn't about you or your child. And there's some um, comfort in that, truthfully. Um, and once you keep that perspective, I think the testimony comes across a lot better. Judges are being forced to um, look into your soul, so to speak, to decide if you're telling the truth. And um, witnesses that become belligerent, that become overly anxious, that become um, overly emotional, don't seem quite as believable when the judge knows they're there just to do a professional job. So a a parent that becomes um, very emotional, understandable, you're talking about their child, but a school person who does it doesn't resonate quite as well. So that's always my best advice to try to remember why you're there and that should have a calming effect on you (laughs) because it's sort of all in a day's work, even though that's not what you typically do when you go to work in the morning. But um, as long as you tell the truth, you can't say the wrong thing, you can't do the wrong thing. um, And you're really just there to do a job. My other advice um, to school districts is to understand, before you go to court, understand, um, lawyers call that the theory of your case. Why are you there? You shouldn't be all over the place. So go back again to the example um, of a special education child. What do you think the IEP should look like? Not, it could be this, it could be that, we're open to this, we're open to that, we offered this, we offered that. What's your last best offer? What is it that you're defending? Sit down with your attorney, make sure that you understand what that is, and then stay the course. Once you go into the hearing, stay the course. That's the party line. That's that's um, your argument. That's what you feel you offered, and, and here's why you think it's compliant with the law. I think that presents the clearest case for the judge um, and the most credible one. That's a great point. So sort of having um, a clear narrative and making sure that everybody from the school district team um, is on the same page uh, with that narrative. Exactly. Another area that um, actually when I was talking about communicate, I, I meant to touch on this. When I say communicate, I always caution people, beware the email. So I have a thing about emails. So this is also a common mistake that I see that comes around to create problems in a hearing later. So for all my saying that you should be 
communicating, and you should, remember that an email is something that can later be um, come out, <laughs> be seen. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, lawyers use the term discoverable. It's, it's something that the other lawyer can, do, can use in discovery. Never, ever, ever put anything in an email that you wouldn't put in a letter to somebody else. So I don't think that I would write on a formal letterhead, you know, dear Mr. Nash, that parent is a pain in the neck and I wish she, she would stop calling me. But people do things like that in emails. It shocks me, but they do because they view email as an informal um, conversation, right? We don't write dear and we don't write very truly yours. And we get the email and it's really quick and easy to shoot back an answer. So I, I warn people, you think before, before you hit send and don't put something in an email that might embarrass you later, or that is an expression of how you're feeling in the moment, but isn't truly who you are. And you know, the technology, of course, continues to evolve. So I'm sure that same point carries through for text messages or even yes. social media posts that uh, you might see. A hundred percent agreed. All agreed. I mean, I um, handled a case when I was a judge that got a lot of publicity about a teacher who posted um, things about her students. She was having a bad day, but she um, posted some pretty um, disparaging things about her first grade class. That's a, that's a pretty famous case where at one point, I believe the teacher said, I feel like I'm a warden to future criminals. That's the case. <laughs> yes, yes, that was my case. Um, and um, yeah, so I, you know, I, I think that was a bad day, but unacceptable behavior. So many times, of course, uh, the evidence can be overwhelming and it's not really um, in dispute what actually occurred, what the facts are. But in many other cases, that's not true. And as a judge, you have to make credibility judgments. Can, can you talk a little bit about uh, that process of sort of assessing the credibility of witnesses that are just saying very different versions of what occurred? Yeah, so um, credibility is more an art than a science, the, the, the process of deciding who you believe. And so many things um, go into it, and it probably varies in terms of each judge's approach. But for me, I look at everything. I look at your demeanor in the hearing room. I look at your body language. I look at whether you hesitate to answer the question or whether you answer it quickly. I look at whether you answer the question directly or you avoid. Many years ago, I was involved in a deposition where um, the witness was said not to say too much. So she ended up seeming extremely not credible. So for example, they asked her, did your father own a car? And the answer was, what do you mean by a car? All right, so, so you know, um, answer, if it's an obvious answer to the question, answer it directly. Um, so those are all things that, that factor into credibility. I also look at the other evidence. So if you're telling a certain narrative, but three other witnesses are telling it differently, I might believe them, I might believe you, but it now puts up my radar that how come I'm hearing different versions of the story. Sometimes I have to um, dig a little deeper. Sometimes per I, what, what I said before, I realize that neither version is entirely accurate and neither version was actually intentionally dishonest. It was just that person's perception of what took place. And sometimes I am able to meld the two versions into what I think is what really happened. So it's a very complex, nuanced process. And the witness's job really in all of that is just to try to be as credible as possible. 
And that's a little more complicated than just telling the truth, <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying. Um, it's, um, it, it, you, want, you want to answer questions directly. You want to answer them thoughtfully. You want to make eye contact. You want to seem relaxed. You don't want to be overly emotional. You certainly don't want to be belligerent. Th those are all things that can color your credibility as a way. Yeah, that same concept, of course, applies um, with school administrators and affirmative action officers and anti-bullying specialists and others in the school district who have to conduct investigations. You know, in many cases, the evidence might be clear. There might not be any conflict about what happened. But in other cases, you're hearing very different versions um, of events. So can you talk about how you view the actions of school officials when they are making credibility judgments? about um, what might have occurred and, and the deference that you would give to a school principal or others assessing the credibility of students that they interviewed? Well, I, you know, I would actually um, look over what they did with an eye towards seeing whether they did it in a way that would be similar to how a judge would do it. And if I feel satisfied that they crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's and asked all the questions and, and made their best judgment, then I, I would likely defer. Of course, if an investigation had a lot of gaps, if, not, if the conclusions made no sense to me, if there seemed like several people that should have been questioned and no explanation why they weren't, those might all be factors that might lead me to think that it wasn't as thorough an investigation um, and it sounds like when there is a reasonable process, you would tend to uh, want to give deference to those school district investigators if you can see they were thorough in how they went about their, their approach. Exactly right. Because you, you do have to remember, too, that um, they will have interviewed people that I'm not interviewing, so I can't make my own independent credibility determination. Typically, say, in a bullying case, I might see the history of the investigation, but I'm not going to hear from every student that was questioned. So, yes, I do have to defer on some basis to what the school district did. So, so you've had an in incredible career and, like you said, have a, an incredible career. Um, any final words of wisdom for school leaders and others who are in many ways fearful of how our society seems to be becoming uh, more litigious? And this fear of everything we do could drag us into court, could get us into legal trouble. It's hard to function as a school leader, as an educator, when you sort of have that fear hanging over you. Yes. And that's, um, I don't know if it's gotten worse. It's, it's as long as I can remember, I would say to people, you know, I I'd get a complaint from a parent and I would say, this wouldn't have happened when I was a child. My father would have said, go to your room and he wouldn't have complained. <laughs> he would have punished me and said, you know, I'm not calling the school. You were, you were the one that uh, did wrong. Um, yes. Parents are more litigious. Um, members of the public are more litigious. Everybody's more um, litigious. I don't have a magic bullet solution, but my best advice is to just be true to your mission as a school leader. Just do your job, do it well. And when people file a lawsuit, your situation should be readily defensible. You know, fortunately, we have wonderful school board attorneys in the state of New Jersey that are there to lend a hand um, and give guidance. Sadly, the legal aspect of things is just part and parcel of running a public entity like a school district. But I think that school administrators are better served by keeping their focus on education and performing their educational duties well. That will always hold them in good stead. And um, as legal things come up, consult your attorney for guidance. But I wouldn't get too bollocked up in the legal 
stuff because it'll it, it's going to distract you from your real mission. So Judge Bass, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about these important issues. Um, your experience, I think, is so helpful for so many in the field. And it, you did help to demystify some of the, some so. of the key aspects in this process. So uh, thank you for, for taking this time. Oh, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me. So for our listeners, I, we want to thank you for being with us for this episode of the Legal One podcast. Uh, We encourage you to visit our website at www.njpsa.org slash Legal1NJ to see all of the episodes of the Legal One podcast and the many other training opportunities and resources that we have available through Legal One to support you in the important work that you're doing in our schools every day. So thank you once again. Be safe, be well, and we look forward to having you with us on future episodes of the Legal One podcast. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.